When we think of play-based learning, our thoughts often go to the wonderful learning environments in our pre-K and kindergarten classrooms. Images of learning and exploring through dress-up centers, blocks, creative play, and play that involves nature that taps into the senses. These beautiful settings spark creativity and curiosity for developing young brains. However, when our students move on up to grade one, these wonderful learning opportunities through play often come to a halt. The students now in desks and following an academic-based curriculum. It seems that their learning environment shift to a setting with more similarities to high school than the classroom from the previous year in kindergarten. Play now becomes a time for recess and at home, and school now a place to work. This continues on through a student's academic journey, and the word play, which is so embraced in the early years, becomes a four-letter word in education for older students. Teachers dismiss play as something that belongs in student learning. The importance of play is forgotten and left in the early years classrooms. Studies, however, show that play has wonderful benefits not only for young children, but for all students and continues to be important right into adulthood. Play benefits academic achievement, engagement, language, regulation, and well, it's just fun. But how does an educator incorporate meaningful, playful learning into environments beyond the early years? And does this really benefit our students? In this episode, we will be exploring the topic of play and playful learning with Kami Karkachuk, an early years learning coach and play specialist. She will share the benefits of play in all stages of a student's learning journey and how educators can and should bring a little more play into their learning environments and instructional practices. It's time for teachers to get a little more playful in their instructional practices. Today on Teacher Table, we have Cami, an early learning coach with Saskatchewan River School Division. She is going to share her expertise on play-based learning and tell us how teachers can bring more play into their teaching practice. Thanks for coming today, Cami. Thanks for having me. Hi, Cami. Can you start by telling us a little about your journey as an educator? Sure. So this is uh, my 15th year in the profession. Um, I started the first decade of my career was at a small rural school where the majority of students lived on farms and acreages. And I taught primarily kindergarten. That was my constant. That was my homeroom. But because it was halftime, the other halftime, I uh, pretty much taught every subject and grade under the sun and kind of culminated in my um, favorite year of teaching, which was when I had a kindergarten grade six split. Uh, and then after I finished my graduate degree, I moved to um, an early intervention pre-K program at what we in our division like to call a school of opportunity. And the life experiences at that school kind of led me to see a different side of the play and what it could do and become interested in the therapeutic side. So I took my certificate in relational and therapeutic play through the Canadian Association of Play Therapy. And uh, it's actually great timing. I don't think either of you ladies knew this, but uh, in my role as an early years coach, we've 
currently been uh, reworking on the literacy model for our division. And a big chunk of that literacy model is actually about um, experiential play-based learning for older grades as well. Okay, Cami. so what is play-based education? And why do you think it's important for the teachers to be aware of this? Well, I guess I should start by saying like play is notoriously hard to define. So for our purposes, uh, looking at it as a pedagogical model, my personal definition is just that it is an activity or experience that has three components. So number one is that it is playful. Um, number two is that it's centered around the child and primarily socially based. And number three, and most important, I think, is that it involves a great deal of intrinsic motivation. And so then the other thing to be to think about with play-based uh, learning is that play will look different at different ages and stages because it evolves throughout our lifetime. You think of a baby plays different than a three-year-old versus a 10-year-old versus an adult. So because of that, um, play-based education is going to look very different throughout the grades. But when we do talk about play-based education, we usually think of the early years. And what that really looks like is foundational areas of play being used to teach developmentally appropriate skills and concepts. Uh, and as far as why it's important, um, it is so important to the development of the child that is actually listed by the UN as one of the rights of the child. It is how children learn um, and it is how they're wired to learn. And it really allows, play-based learning really allows the teacher the opportunity to adjust their teachings in order to accommodate, accommodate rather, all of the needs of the student. Because it's really great for scaffolding and for multiple programming for students, all students, but in particular students with intensive needs because it has so many entry points. Right on. Thank you for clarifying that, what play-based learning yeah. is. Great definition. I think sometimes, too, um, you know, maybe teachers who've been around for a while, too, might see play as something that not necessarily belongs in the classroom, right? That's recess. That's for at home. At school, we're here to work. And work and play are two separate things. And I think it's important for educators with, you know, people like you to help us along the way to see that play can come into the classroom and should come into the classroom. Right. Perfect. And I think we have come a long way with that. I, I mean, even in my 15 years in the profession, I do think the mindsets are changing. But I, I also think we have a long ways to go, particularly once we get out of early childhood. Yeah, I think that leads nicely into our next question. Um, how, as Lorianne was saying, some teachers might be might feel judged or looked down upon for incorporating play into their classroom. So what advice do you have for them so their colleagues, parents, and maybe even administration understand play-based learning as an effective way to learn and teach? I think first off, it's really important to remember that children are not just mini adults where their brains are developing and play is first and foremost, the developmentally appropriate way for their brains to learn. Um, so, if you're, if you're coming against resistance, the first thing I would suggest is just to do your own research, whether it be reading or listening to podcasts like this one, uh, so that you're comfortable having a disagreement with someone in a power position. So that can be admin, upper admin colleagues, even parents, right, are in a position of power sometimes for us. 
The other thing I would really recommend is to use the language of your division because play-based learning is pedagogically sound. It is. You can know that. And so, like, for example, if inquiry is the buzzword in your school or your division, like in our curriculums, I was just looking through the grade one and two social studies and science curriculums, inquiry, it's inquiry, inquiry, inquiry. You can talk about the overlap uh, between inquiry and to show the importance of play-based learning. Or in our division right now, the work of John Hattie is really key. Um, and for anyone who's listening who who isn't familiar with John Hattie, it's he basically, he's somewhat of an educational revolutionary. He did meta-analysis of hundreds, if not thousands, of educational research, and then he put number values. And I think that's the number values are a big thing. And so Basically, the key you need to know to understand his work is that 0.4, that's the hinge point to what a student learns in a typical year of school. So in other words, 0.4 is a year's worth of growth. And any teaching strategies above that mean those strategies can actually accelerate growth. So play-based learning is actually 0.5, which means it's above Uh, a year's growth. And then if you delve even deeper into that, you have things like cooperative learning, which is 0.59, creativity programs, which is 0.62, classroom discussion, which, I mean, if you think about students sitting in desks in rows working on independent work versus um, in collaborative projects, uh, you can see which is going to have the most classroom discussion. It's 0.82. Uh, and then, which is double, that's that's basically a two years growth. And Piaget and programs, as they call it, it's really just the work of Piaget, which, which really is about the development of children and goes into it, is a 1.28, which is three times the year's growth. So these are mind-blowing numbers to justify experiential play-based learning. So really, it's just... <sighs> having confidence and knowing that you are justified in choosing these strategies. You're doing what is best for the students. And of course, it's a balance of strategies. You're not going to do this all the time, especially, uh, you know, in grades one and up, but that these play-based strategies are important and they are worth taking up time in your really busy classroom schedule. I think sometimes it's just us getting used to, and like you said, we've come a long way, but we still have a ways to go of just looking at, you know, the traditional practices that we kind of go to or what our experiences were as students and just knowing that there's other ways for students to learn besides sitting in those desks and rows and worksheets. I know I walked into a classroom once. It was our grade one teacher and it was the beginning of the school year and it was towards the end of the day and she was just letting the children play and it was beautiful they were engaged and they were turn taking and cooperating you could just see creativity and i could just tell when i walked in i'm the student support services teacher at my school she she kind of gave me a look of horror like <laughs> and i was like no like and you know she kind of apologized for it and i was like no this is wonderful and you can just tell there's still a little bit of stigma and you know i i don't know if it's cuz she's great one And, you know, play is supposed to be pre-K and play is supposed to be kindergarten. Then magically they're grade one, these little six-year-olds and even five-year-olds. And what? We're supposed to stop playing? And then what? All of a sudden they're six and seven, even less play. You know, I do see that, you know. There's these beautiful play experiences going on in our pre-K and kindergarten programs. And then it just kind of phases out. 
And like, I even know when we do care partners, not now because of COVID, but back when we were doing care partners and the grade sevens would go up, you know, with the kindergartens and go down to the room and you'd see these 12 and 13 year olds down on the floor playing and you could tell they loved it. They did. I think play is innately in all of us and us grownups too. We like to play. It just might look a little different. All right. So I have a question kind of about those older students. And, um, you know, like I said, you see a lot of beautiful play going on in pre-K and kindergarten and great one to a certain degree. So how can teachers like who say, let's say they see the benefit of play. How can teachers in older grades incorporate play-based learning into their day, into their schedule, their timetable for, for older students? Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting. I think you really hit the nail on the head. There is this pervasive common misconception that play ends in childhood. And in the schools, we seem to think that it ends abruptly after kindergarten. Um, but it's actually, it's it's like you mentioned, it, it really crosses our lifespan. Um, and like you said, it looks a little bit different, right? Because play evolves. And it is important to keep that in mind when you're talking about play-based learning, because of course, when we hear play-based learning, our brains go to the early years. And well, some of that can be replicated. And I, I really do think teachers in older grades can learn a lot and would be good to take some classes in university on the reasoning behind early years classrooms and especially take the to heart the idea of small group instruction and giving students more choice and autonomy. But it's still important to know that you can't just replicate a kindergarten classroom in a grade six classroom. So then what does play-based learning look? Well, I mentioned earlier a little bit about inquiry. Well, inquiry and play-based approaches, they're really, they're really just branches on that same constructivist tree. And the line between the two becomes blurrier the older students get. And so as we grow older, our play tends to become more experiential, more based on personal inquiry, but it always keeps those same three components that we described earlier, right? It's always playful. It sparks joy. It balances our wheel. It gets us into the flow state. It's personal. It follows our interests, which is what we mean when we say child-centered. And it's always extremely intrinsically motivated. So um, this question really makes me think we've been working so hard on that this year um, about our experiential play-based um, model, literacy model. And what what uh, I did as part of my work this year was to really delve into the research about how play evolves and how we can um, see that best implemented in in older grades. And so how I ended up um, breaking it up is that I there are kind of five overarching umbrella categories of play that can easily be implemented from grades one up to grades 12. So artistic play is the first one of that. It's probably the easiest foothold because we, we see it already used in classrooms a lot. And teachers can feel a little bit more confident in this. The only thing is, is that if it's artistic play, it's not I say and you do. It's not crafting. If all the products look the same, it's not artistic play. But examples of artistic play, I'm sure you can think of a million things in classrooms, painting, working with clay or pottery, experimenting with different materials and mediums. It's it's one that we see a lot. Um, the second type is exploratory play, which by its very nature, this is just this is the hands on play. 
it puts the player into an authentic role of explorer or investigator. And this is where we see STEM play. Uh, this is where we see the robotics, the Lego construction, the destination imagination programming, our genius hours in middle years. That's all part of exploratory play. And it actually, exploratory play evolves into our trade classes in high school and the you know do-it-yourself home projects in adulthood. Uh, the third kind is small world play. And speaking really broadly, it's just taking something on a large scale and bringing it down to a smaller scale. So in early years, we see this in our block play, in our Lego, in our creating dioramas. Uh, video games and certain types of board games are actually also types of small world play. And then we see it in adults. You wouldn't think of it as play necessarily, but when you know you pull out the Christmas villages during the holiday season, that's a form of small world play, fairy gardens, that kind of thing. Anything large scale to small scale. Uh, the fourth kind is sociodramatic play. And interestingly enough, this is the one that research has shown um, makes the most growth. And I find that interesting because I think this is the type of play that we see the least. It drops off very quickly after kindergarten. So in pre-K and K, you see lots and lots of dramatic play areas. You see lots of sociodramatic play, um, which as a broad definition is just creative play that is social in nature. Uh, and when we do see it in the classrooms or good ways to, to embed it in older grades is usually in language arts, science, or the humanities. So that can be things like readers theater or mock trials or elections. And it's really just dramatizations or reenactments, right? So that can be, like I said, from the early years, dramatic play centers, which I would implore grades one to three teachers to try implementing some of that as well, but it can also be, you know, actualizing characters from a novel through dramatization as well. And then the last kind is another kind we see a lot. And um, Piaget would actually say, this is kind of the final step of play that we go to and becomes the more common one. Uh, and that's just games play. So that the definition's really simple for that one. It's just simply games with rules. So that's includes all kinds of things like physical sports, games, uh, word games, board games, dice games, computer games. So games play includes actually playing the games, but it also a really great way of incorporating play into older classrooms is having them create their own versions with co-created rules. And that's another way you can incorporate it. I think sometimes too, starting off small, you know, if you are a middle years teacher teaching the older yes. grade, you know, even when you said, you know, um, fun and sparks joy, even I thought of something as simple as, and I don't know if this falls under play-based, but like a joke, jokes. You know, yes. You know, that's playful. That's playful. That could even be a way to start if somebody's not too sure. I love that you use the term playful because if you are an older grades uh, teacher, and by older grades, I mean, you know, middle years and high school as well. Um, there's a really great book called The Playful Classroom. And they talk about the difference between play as um, a, an actual activity and play as a mindset. And that's exactly like what you said, right? And sometimes it's just baby steps and we just get into play a playful mindset. And from there, when as you grow comfortable with it and, and you see the engagement, 
then you can make bigger strides. You don't have to jump in with both feet and make your whole room a play-based classroom, right? You can start with little things at a time. Like I know once um, I was working with some middle year students and they always wanted to take a shortcut through my classroom because it was just a shortcut to get to another part of the school. And then I started telling them that they to pass almost like I was the wizard blocking the the entrance. (laughs) They had to answer a riddle before I would let them go. And they loved it. They loved it. I love that. That is quite a riddle on the computer. It wasn't anything, but they had to like answer the riddle before they could cross my realm, you know, and they loved it. It was a riddle that I found on the internet. And you know, I guess that's just what I think that I know I'm guilty of it. I think it has to be this big thing. And, you know, my room has to look like a pre-K room. And it doesn't. It doesn't. No, it doesn't. Yeah. And, you know, you speak to a good point, too, about the way that being playful aids in relationships with the children. And it really does build those relationships. And I love that example of just you know, one way that you can find time to be playful in the classroom. And I'm sure that's something they will still remember as, you know, as they grow up and look back, that'll probably be one of those moments in school that they remember. Yeah. Just looking for ways to engage <laughs> students, right? There we go. So if a teacher wants to start play-based learning, what would be your top five kind of go-tos or top five items for teachers to add to their wish list. So I'm a teacher, I'm convinced I want more play, more playful learning in my classroom. You know, what could be the top five things that they could start with or wish list to go to? This is such a tough question. <laughs> I want to add so much, but I would also say that the my advice for this would really differ significantly depending on grade level and then also on comfort level of the teacher. So I would say, you know, if you are a teacher who's nervous at all about it, uh, I would start simply by looking at what you're already doing in the classroom and building on those routines. And so easy footholds into play-based learning are the reader's theater, artistic play, and games play. So I would say use those three as a springboard if you're, if you are someone who's you know, interested in taking it on, but not ready to jump in whole hog, I would look into purchasing, you know, board games and word games and reader's theater scripts. Those are also good to create with the students. Um, For those teachers who are ready and confident to jump in, I would start, especially for those teachers in grades one to three, I would start with some of the foundational areas of play. So I'd look at Uh, beefing up your dramatic play, um, even just introducing it. And then looking at making an art center, a writing center that is, that is playful. Um, Even a block center. We have quite a few teachers now in grade one, starting to incorporate block centers and turning them into small world play. And, and it's actually working really, really well. And then I'd also look at uh, creating, an inquiry area for exploratory play. So I know I'm totally cheating, but those aren't my five items. Those are just my precursor. I can cheat. I'm allowed to do that. If I were to say five items, though, I would say puppets would be my number one. I 
I would start with animal, I would start with people and then animals that are native to your area or familiar to your students. You're going to get a lot more use out of them that way. Um, if you're looking for really good quality ones, I'd say go see if you can spend the money and get folk manis ones. Um, my second, my second top item would be a market stall. And I don't know if you have anywhere where you can post pictures for anyone who doesn't know what that is, but it's really, you can look, you can purchase them, but there's also, if you go on Pinterest, lots of do it yourself ones with just old pallets or that kind of thing. It's really just one of those pieces of furniture that is so open-ended that if you decided to include dramatic play in your classroom, you could use that and that could be your only piece of furniture for it for the whole year. Um, my third one would be leg, uh, not Lego, blocks. And I'm torn between wooden blocks or Lego. I do like Lego though, because it transitions nicely into middle years. And there's a really great Lego education program that focuses on STEM subjects and the robotics. So regardless though of brand, any type of building, some type of building material would be in my top, it would be in my top three. And then number four isn't really an item, but it would be trying to convince your administration that you need flex seating. So I guess the item would be tables <laughs> or seating of some type, carpet area, couch. Just really, it's very difficult to do any type of play or inquiry unless you have flex seating. Um, and if I can cheat a little bit further, I would say my fifth would actually be access to nature. <laughs> so whether that be an outdoor classroom or fenced in area or grassy field, but since that's out of teacher's control, <laughs> if they can't do that, my fifth item would just be loose parts because they're cheap and they're incredibly versatile. So when you say loose parts, give us some examples. What are loose parts? Oh boy, we could do an entire... <laughs> <laughs> on this part. But basically, if you're interested in it, I highly recommend you. There's lots of blogs about it, lots of books. Loose Parts is really going back to using your imagination. Um, you Things like gems, sticks, tree cookies, um, all those kinds of things. They can be used in every subject for lots of different purposes from, you know, mass manipulatives to artistic uh play so yeah that's a really brief explanation of loose parts but it's something that educators out there can explore you know yes. get on get online yeah. and look up loose parts play and see what comes up for sure for sure now we just have to deal with this covid pandemic that's <laughs> We can get the kids together and playing again. Yes, that's the that's been definitely been the tricky part this year. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Who are your uh, favorite play-based educators that people can follow or the best resources for teachers who want to learn more about play-based learning? Jed Derryberry. He's my absolute favorite. Um, it's D-E-A-R-Y-B-U-R-Y. -R -R I'm spelling it for you because to me, that does not say Derryberry, but that is how he pronounces it. So that's how I'm going to say it. Um, if you can, he has lots of podcasts. He has his website. He is really just um, this revolutionary thinker for play-based education. He actually teaches... Um, 
undergrad students to become teachers now. And he he's the one who I was referring to earlier that really talks about the playful mindset versus play as um, an action. And, and he advocates for both. And so him and Julie Jones together, they wrote a book called The Playful Classroom. It just came out in 2020. It's a brand new book. If you are especially... Um, if you're an older year student, <laughs> it's so funny. You could tell I'm pre-KK or Ken K because I always talk about older years and I could be meaning grade two here, but <laughs> I really say this book is great for grade one to grade 12. It's a great book called The Playful Classroom. Uh, another one I really, really like, her name's Deanna Pekaski mclennan and she is a Canadian teacher. She actually has her doctorate and teaches kindergarten in Ontario. Um, she has a, a blog online called Joyful Learning in the Early Years blog. Um, and she also has a couple of really good books. One's called Joyful Math. Don't it's it's much, it goes much farther than math though. And the other one's called Kinder Coding Unplugged, which is STEM activities that don't require screens. Both of those books, I would say if you are a grade one to three teacher, even though they talk about kindergarten, you could pick those up and really, you could really learn a lot from them. And then the other one I I really like is Dr. Stuart Brown. He has lots of TED Talks. He's not actually an educator. He is, um, a, I believe he's a psychologist and a play researcher. And the interesting thing about him is that he came to play in a very uh, unusual way. He he uh, would interview serial killers <laughs> and very unstable people who were locked up. And one of the key discoveries actually was that all of these people lacked play. And so that's what brought him on to um, researching play. And since then, he's become kind of one of the top minds in play research. So he has lots of TED Talks that are, you know, five to ten minutes. And and they are just really enlightening. And, and he's very entertaining as well. All right. I'll have to check those out. Thanks so much for joining us today, Cami. I feel like you... I felt like I knew a lot about play-based learning and I just learned even more tonight. And I just really appreciate everything that you shared, especially as in the fall, I'm going into an older grade and I feel like I would still really like to do play-based education. And I feel like you just really gave me the motivation to continue on. And that's wonderful. I think, I think the more, um, early years teachers we have that go into other grades and I just really feel like there's going to be a play movement. I, mm -hmm. I think our education system is ready for it and yeah. teachers are excited about it and and I'm excited to see the other half of my career unfold with it. Thanks Cami. Here's to play. Hey. <laughs> <laughs>